Well, it's good to be back, and um, I, I really, really enjoyed having the break and watching Kim and Pete do what they did. They did a wonderful job. I know you guys know that, um, but it's good to be back. My voice sounds a little funny. I'm still kind of getting over a little something. I uh, want to give you the top 10 list that, that was uh, put together. People were surveyed about, you know, what do they think about, what do they associate when they think of Christmas? And here's typical top 10 list. Number one was the Christmas tree. People associated with Christmas, Christmas movies and specials. I'm sure many of us enjoy all those things. Uh, Santa Claus, Christmas songs, Christmas cookies, family, presents, snow, frosty the snowman. And coming in, number 10 was Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to go off on this. I, I, I think that um, this is just the typical cultural Christmas that we have developed, particularly in America. Uh, I'm not even going to say that there, there's something terribly wrong about this. I know that churches like to do this. They're like, we need to put Christ back in Christmas. Well, you, you know, that, that's a given. We understand that. I'm actually going to do a message, the Christmas Day message. It'll be video recorded. I'm going to try to show you how to take some of these cultural norms and change their meaning for you and maybe leverage them to perhaps even have conversations with other people and to rethink about situations that we typically find ourselves in on Christmas. So anyway, we've called this series, uh, this big unusual title, The Nativity Singularity. And the reason I came up with that was because I wanted to, the goal of my uh, putting this series together was one singular thing, kind of audacious. But I wanted to change the way you view Christmas forever. Uh, I didn't want you to have a cultural Christmas embedded in your heart and mind. My goal, kind of audacious, may not work, but it was to forever change the way you think about Christmas, to take it from a cultural perspective, not knocking the cultural perspective, but to turn it to a, a truly biblical, eternal perspective. What does the, the Bible, what does God's revelation about himself and about truth and about time say about this event? Uh, how does heaven look upon this event? I, I wanted to give you that vision so that as you enjoy the cultural Christmas, you will also be able to see past that and through that into the greater meaning. Because what we wanted to establish is this was one of the greatest moves of God. It was an intervention in his eternal plan. He has had an eternal plan before he created anybody or anything. He had a plan. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. He knew what was going to happen before it happened. He made provisions and all that kind of thing. But then as he went through this plan, there's just certain small periods where he intervenes in a very graphic way. This was a physical intervention of the eternal God taking his plan, his eternal plan, into a, a new frame, a, a new level, as it were. Kim kind of stated it really nicely when she compared it to D-Day. D-Day was the beginning of the end of World War II. It, it was this intense initiative. It didn't end World War II that day, but it started the beginning of the end. Well, Christmas spells the beginning of the end of evil as we know it. it it is the big eternal initiative of God to forever abolish evil and all that that means because in order to abolish evil you have to change the hearts and minds of image-bearing beings beings that have free minds free emotions free will and get us to change our minds 
in the way that we think about evil. That's not going to happen with everyone, neither in the angelic civilizations or in the human, but it is happening with many. Many of you in this room, there was a time in your life, there certainly was a time in my life, where I just thought of evil as fun. You know, that, that if you lived a so-called right life or a righteous life, that was just boring. But God changed my mind. I, I, I saw a life that was so much more beautiful than the one that I was living, that the world was living in Jesus, in his kingdom, in his word, in his will, that it, it won my heart, it won my trust, it won my confidence, it, it won my affection. And so I turned from an ignorant, unrighteous life to live the way that the Creator designed me to live. And I know that many of you in here, it's, it's true. So this Christmas initiative, it's, it's had sway in the hearts of thousands and millions down through the ages, and I'm sure many of us in this room. Now, in our series, we've kind of covered this from three phases. Kim started out with the simplicity and profundity. She didn't like profundity. Simplicity, I like it. I like this word, uh, profundity of Christmas. And she kind of emphasized Joseph and Mary uh, being the focal point of that. But she also masterfully laid out God's eternal plan through the ages, some of which I'm going to, you know, go over again today. And then Pete took it to a more personal level. He dealt with the obscurity and the majesty. He centered in on the shepherds in particular, the people that were just faces in the crowd, the people that were the most unlikely at all for heaven to be interested in. And he showed you never as a human being get to the place where heaven is not interested in you. We can reject God's love, absolutely. We can, we can frustrate all his desires to do us good by just simply ignoring him, ignoring, ignoring his will, his way, his word. But it doesn't mean that we're not still significant to his heart. So Pete kind of really brought that out and brought it home. Now today I'm going to try to close it out with the vulnerability and potentiality of this event. That This Christmas event, this Christmas intervention, it's full of vulnerability. The, the characters, you've got, again, Joseph and Mary and a baby, very vulnerable. You've got these magi, these individuals, you know, that are probably from Persia that have probably had access to the scriptures through people like Daniel and so forth, as well as, you know, study of the stars, and they are seeking God. Make no mistake, their gifts in indicate that they were expecting a child to be born who was not just a child, but who was also divine. So, but, the, but they're fragile. They're fragile individuals. And then, of course, we have a, a real dark horse in this, this thing, this King Herod. Now, Herod was kind of famous at this particular time. He had renovated the Jewish temple, made it one of the wonders of the world of his day. But he was paranoid about his power, his rule, his celebrityhood, so much so that when he became suspicious that his wife was maybe not loyal to him, loyal meaning politically loyal, uh, though he dearly loved her, all history indicates, he killed her. He not only killed her, he killed three of his 12 sons because he also suspected them of wanting his power, his throne. He, he was consumed with maintaining his power, spreading his legacy, and he's the dark horse in this story. So let's pick up and read the story a little bit for ourselves just to remind ourselves. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, now notice, there's a time gap here. Like, like in a lot of Christmas presentations, you kind of <laughs> envision the shepherds and the magi all kind of, you know, coming at once. Not true. Probably a year to two years have gone by since the initial birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, during the time of King Herod, 
Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king? He's born a king which threatened Herod, king of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose and have come to do what? You don't worship human beings. You worship a king only if that king is divine. Make no mistake, these magi were spiritual individuals. And they went through great rigors to try to get to this, this event and worship, to, to give themselves. You don't worship someone that you don't know. You don't worship someone that you don't trust. The, these were spiritual men. It goes on. When King Herod heard this news, he was disturbed because he didn't want any other king. And all Jerusalem with him, they had kind of concluded that they liked the way things were going politically. They didn't want anybody to shake things up. Go and search carefully. This is Herod talking. Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, he's talking to the wise men, the magi, report to me so that I may go and do what? Worship him. That was the least of his thoughts. And having been warned in a dream not to go back, this is the angel warned the magi, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone... And the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to where? All indicators are they have to stay hiding out on the run in Egypt for about two years until Herod finally dies. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until you, uh, stay there until I tell you for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. goes on. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, which shows the gap in time from Jesus' birth to the time when he's a child now. He was in a manger at his birth. He was in a house when uh, they were looking for him at this time. So he kills all the boys from two years old and up in accordance with the time uh, he had learned from the Magi. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So here we we see the the central plot, and and we can't help but to see the vulnerability of this eternal plan of God. I, I mean, the, the Christ, the Messiah, is placed in the hands of two very imperfect human beings who were not powerful, who had no prestige, who couldn't possibly defend themselves from political figures like Herod and his military. And, and let's just comp- contemplate something. What if... What if they had not taken the child and run to Egypt? I mean, what if Joseph and Mary would have received this word from the angel? It was the word of God given through the angel. And and the angel says, you need to go. God is saying, you need to get out of here. You need to run. You need to go to Egypt. What if they would have just said something like, well, I believe the word of the Lord, but God is sovereign. he's, He's unstoppable. He'll protect us. We don't have to worry about anything. What if they would have stayed where they were instead of running to Egypt? How many of you think they would have been killed? Can I just see your hands? Yeah. Listen, God works out his eternal plan in absolute vulnerability, the vulnerability 
of trusting human beings, imperfect, fragile, vulnerable human beings to be the carriers out of his plan. And he trusts us that we will trust him and be willing to do what he says with the, the concrete belief that anything that he tells us, it's because he knows us better than we know ourselves. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He knows what's best, wants what's best. And so when he says to do something, we do it because we trust him. He's won our trust. So they, they run. Just a little aside. Can you, can you mark this off in your minds that you or I can be right in the center of God's will. We, we can be fulfilling a critical role in his eternal plan. And yet all we're going to feel like is out of control. All we're going to feel like is we, we've got to run and we've got to try to survive. We have to run for our lives. We have to hide out sometimes in exile like that couple did for likely two years. But they were right in the center of God's will, but all they probably felt was out of control. All they probably felt was inconsequential. All they probably felt was, we're just desperate trying to survive. We're just trying to stay alive and keep our child alive. You and I can be right in the center of God's will and things are not gonna go well all the time. And when they don't go well all the time, I hear Christians giving stories. You know, they'll tell a story like, well, yeah, I, I, I lost my job, but then all of a sudden God opened this door and, and I got this wonderful job and I, they, they doubled my salary and everybody there was a Christian and they all loved me and, and every day of my life is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I just knew it was God because everything just flowed. How many of you heard this kind of testimonies? Yeah, Christians are famous for those. But I don't hear many testimonies like, you know, I was right in the center of God's will and I had to run for my life. I didn't know if I was going to survive. I had to hide out for two years. I had to struggle just to, to try to stay alive and keep my family alive. And yet when Joseph and Mary were just trying to keep their child alive, some of you need to hear this as the whole message. They, they were just trying to fulfill their God-given role to be parents to their child. They might have felt inconsequential. They might have felt out of control. They, they might have felt insignificant. But they were critically fulfilling the purpose of God they were they were having eternal impact just keeping themselves and that child alive listening to the word of God like Kim it's brought out they had the habit of saying yes to God and in that context they were causing the eternal plan of God to take this massive leap forward sometimes you are in the center of God's will it doesn't feel like it at all and yet you are fulfilling some critical role that you likely, I likely won't even know about until we stand before the throne of God and, and he lays all this out and shows us how everything connected together. Just an aside. Now, what I want to do is turn the rest of this time to blowing up on stage. <laughs> we know not why this happens only to me. <laughs> we only know that it does. <laughs> so what do you think? You're pointing at me uh, to to grasp this one, Pete? Behind the keyboard. Behind the keyboard. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, there's a couple of them. Does it matter which one I take? The other one. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> Why would it not be? <laughs> All right. I know it. It's me. I'm telling you, I'm electric, man. <laughs> I got the juice. <laughs> uh, okay, I don't know which mic I'm actually coming through. This one now, okay. All right, so I want to spend 
The rest of the time in his first point, focusing on something that sounds kind of contradictory, particularly to some of you it might be, and, and that's God's vulnerability. The, this passage, this Christmas event, this Christmas initiative of God working at his eternal plan, it just screams at the vulnerability of God. Consider what we've already said. His plan was contingent upon frail, imperfect human beings doing what he asks them to do, entering into uncomfortable circumstances, and then be willing to trust him. They stayed in Egypt until the Lord came and said, it's time to come back. By the way, sometimes in our life we're in the center of God's will, but we're just kind of hiding out, surviving in exile. That's how it feels to us. We feel like we've been shelved and set aside. But then God suddenly, in some way, says it's time to get back in the game. And that has inherent risks too. When they had to go back to their land, they couldn't have helped but to be a little bit afraid. They had to risk and they had to kind of reorient themselves to get back to the place where God wanted them to be. Anyway, so that's a secondary thing. So let's consider God's vulnerability. The, the people involved. Uh, I mean, Joseph and Mary, they're just people. You've got a fragile baby that's, you know, easily could get sick could get injured all these different kinds of things and then you've got this bad character you've got this bad political figure and i'm not saying all politics throughout human history are bad but nevertheless you got herod who's using power and might just sheer intimidation to try to get his will to be done as opposed to god's will so the vulnerability of god to have his plan dependent upon these individuals with these kind of dark forces at work it just screams of God's vulnerability. But, but there's even more. There's more than that there. I, I want to ask you guys a question. Have you met people before that their picture of God, and, and, and I'm not saying that it's completely incorrect, but essentially their picture of God is that God is immortal, eternal, invulnerable, unstoppable. There's nothing that can thwart his will. His will will be done. He conquers all. He's the almighty. And, and that's pretty much their view of God. Now, you couldn't help but to hear in that a lot of truth. There is a lot of truth in that. But how many of you have met people that and maybe you're one of them, so don't feel bad, but your tilt is sort of toward, you know, the will of God cannot be thwarted. He is invulnerable, unstoppable. How many have met people like that, or perhaps you are people like that? Can I just see your hand for a minute? Okay. It, it, it's kind of a comforting thing. You know, God is sovereign. He's in control of everything all the time. And yet, I want to ask you another question. How many would agree that the Bible itself says God's self-revelation that when it's trying to describe God, it says God is light, God is spirit, and then it says God is, who can fill it in for me? Love. God is love. It, it, it's saying that if you want to understand the, the core of God, if you want to understand what makes him tick, if you want to understand the governing force in God, it's love. Now, is it possible, is it possible to authentically love anyone or anything and not be vulnerable think about that for a minute can, can you even love a pet and not be vulnerable if you love a pet for example and that pet dies are you heartbroken do you do you, do you fill with tears can i just see your hands how many have ever lost just a pet we're not even talking about a human c.s lewis said it he, he said love anything 
and surely your heart will be wrung out at some point. You cannot love and remain invulnerable. Because God is love, he is not just vulnerable. I'm going to take it to a different level. He is the most vulnerable person in the universe. He is the most sensitive person in the universe. He feels with his people. He's the only one that can get inside and feel what you feel. He is the only one that can authentically grieve with us because he knows what we feel like on the inside. We try to communicate our feelings to others verbally, but it, it fails to some degree. So God is, is extremely vulnerable. Randy, are you saying that it's possible that God's eternal plan could fail? No, I'm not. He is sovereign in that context, recognizing the free will of humans, the free will of angels, recognizing how that free will will be abused by many. Nevertheless, he knows that if he will continue with his plan of revealing himself and loving the way he loves that ultimately his will will be done on this earth as in heaven and all over the universe as well so his sovereign overarching plan will not fail but make no mistake he's vulnerable he he loves and you can't love and not be vulnerable Listen to the way the Christmas event, as well as the Easter event, are described in the book of Philippians by the Apostle Paul, writing to followers of Christ living in the city of Philippi. He urges them first to, to you know, do the same thing, have the same attitude as Christ, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now he's going to explain what this mindset was. Who being in very nature, who? Please don't think in this term, well, there's, there's God you know, and then, and, then, and, then, and then there's Jesus. He's like the son of God. And then there's Casper the spirit. I'm not sure what he does. He's some kind of force. I don't know. What, what the Bible teaches is something that's a bit brain rattling. But it says that Jesus has eternally existed. He is God. He is the creator. John chapter 1 makes it crystal clear. He's the creator of all things. The New Testament reiterates that. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He and the Father have existed forever. And the Holy Spirit is a person, not an influence. And the three have eternally existed together, and they make up the one true God. You say, well, how can three make one? I don't know. Uh, I just know that that's what the Bible redundantly teaches. So don't, don't get confused who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage in other words the power the prestige Jesus had the ability as God to keep himself safe and comfortable altogether which makes me think uh, a little bit about something if you and I have been writing that story you know about Herod uh, seeking to destroy the Messiah, the Christ, to kill this baby. How many of you know it would have sounded a little bit different if you and I wrote it? I'm going to tell you, my version would have been something like this. As soon as Herod got that thought in his mind, I would have had the biggest, baddest, blinding, bright angel appear to him in his room face to face and speak all King James English to him <laughs> and say, Thou fool, <laughs> dost thou want thine heart to cease from beating? <laughs> it just wouldn't have happened the way it went down you know they wouldn't have had to run anywhere God did not consider or he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage meaning he didn't comfort or protect himself to the degree that he could have rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness it goes on 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, when we read this, we tend to think, well, gee, that was just kind of an arbitrary choice of God. No, it was not. It, it had a very definite purpose, a very strategic purpose. The birth of Jesus, the creator of the universe, as a baby, strategic purpose. And this is where we have to kind of go back. There, there is one portion of the Bible that if you or I don't understand its message, if we don't understand it thoroughly, if it doesn't become the backdrop from which we read the whole rest of the Bible, we have lost the key to understanding God's eternal message as it's given to us in Scripture. Let, let me go further. Every doctrinal era, every theological era that has ever been comes from either... It, ignoring the depth of this passage that I'm going to talk about or misunderstanding it. Now, we refer to it often in here because we want it embedded in your heart because it's the key to understanding the whole Bible. It's the key to understanding the heart of God. It's the key to understanding how God does what he does and why he does it the way he does it. So here we go. Genesis chapter 3. You must understand Genesis chapter 3. It's big. It's not just this story of a snake and some apples, which it doesn't even mention what kind of fruit it is, and some lady, you know, that, that was too hungry for her own good. It's, it's not about that. <laughs> You've heard me say before, bear with me again. This entity, the Nakash, the shining one, likely an upright being, reptilian perhaps, who Adam and Eve were evidently already familiar with comes into the garden and the one tree that God forbid them to partake of he says the day that you eat thereof of the knowledge of good and evil you'll die it'll hurt you it'll destroy you it's not good for you good and evil can't be mixed they are exclusive they will destroy one another it's an inevitability and so this being comes in and says no you won't die you've got to get down to the implications if this being, who we now know to be Lucifer, Satan, the devil, if he says to Adam and Eve, what God told you is not true, he is insinuating you, got, you can't trust God. He doesn't always tell the truth. It's likely the very same thing that he said to the angels in heaven when he moved them in rebellion. Think about living in a society where no one has ever told a lie. Can you imagine the power you would suddenly have if you become the liar? And everybody's going to be super gullible in a society like that. So he perhaps said the same thing to the angels. Hey, you know, guys, it's uncomfortable for me to share it with you. But God just, uh, you know, I know he, he might seem like he's all that, but he just doesn't always tell the truth. And he really is all about his own power and ego and prestige. And I, I mean, I hate to be the one. To, you could see how he could mislead a very naive group of people who had never been exposed to deception. So he comes into the garden. He insinuates to Adam and Eve, you can't trust God. He doesn't always tell the truth. You're not going to die if you eat of that tree. Matter of fact, he's holding you back. You eat of that tree, it's going to make you wise. You're going to be like God yourself. And God's just holding back from you. The implication, God wants to keep you down. God wants to keep you dumb. He wants to deprive you of good experiences. And we still buy into it. When you and I do that which God says don't do, we're buying into the slander of Satan about God and his character, and we're thinking, no, nah, I think you can still do this, and it'll be a good experience and not a bad experience. And, and so that's the way this thing goes. So the slander of God's character. Now, here's what it produced in Adam and Eve. Here's what it produces in us today. When they eat of it, 
And then God comes in the garden to visit them as normal. You can read the story of Genesis 3. You need to read the story of Genesis 3. You need to get thoroughly equipped with Genesis 3. It's the key to the rest of the Bible. You won't understand the reason Christ came as a child, as a human, suffered and died on the cross and rose again. You won't, none of that will make sense. You'll come to the worst kind of errors if you don't start with the real problem. So what was the real problem? Adam and Eve who once trusted God, their creator, entirely, now no longer trusted him. They distrusted him. He comes into the garden. They don't run toward him anymore. They run away from him. So this satanic slander of God's character, it produced distrust in Adam and Eve and every human sense, but it also produced disinterest because they didn't want to be near God. They ran away from God. I remember avoiding God like crazy for 23 years. Anytime somebody brought up a conversation about God, I want to change the subject as fast as I could because I, I just thought that he would steal the fun out of my life. Distrust, disinterest, and then disobedience. These are the greatest problems in the universe. This is why we live in, in chaos and bloodshed and heartbreak every day. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death. Because we have broken our union with our creator through distrust. And when we disobey his word and will, we in, in, inevitably bring consequences upon ourselves and, and upon others. Now, Pete dealt with this aspect in his message. This creates barriers between us and our creator. We, we have a barrier of fear. Adam and Eve, when he, God comes back into the garden, they ran away from him. They tried to hide from him. Fear. The first time human beings ever felt fear. And along with the fear, or what was fueling the fear, was guilt and shame. They, they knew they had done something that was not their creator's will, and they felt uncomfortable with it. They felt guilty. guilty. Now, the difference between guilt and shame is this. Guilt is, I did something that was wrong. Shame is I am something that's wrong. There's something, I, as opposed to I did something wrong, I am wrong. And when we live with a self that we can't stand, it will do strange things to our behavior. It will do strange things to our head. It will do strange things to our life. A lot of us will live the rest of our life just trying to escape from the uncomfortable feeling that we can't quite put our finger on. And we do all kinds of things to do that. But all this happened. It, it's all dynamic in Genesis 3. If we don't understand Genesis 3, we will always be confused about the Bible. Let me, let me share this one illustration with you. I've shared it a million times. Let, let's just pretend I had a thousand-piece puzzle, and I dumped all the pieces on, on a table. And you pick up one piece. And so you look at it, and I ask you, can you identify what that piece is? More importantly, what the puzzle is? By just looking at that one piece? How many of you know that's an impossibility? Okay, I'm just going to make sure you're still tracking with me, right? So what would be a better way? How could you find out what that piece was and more importantly what the puzzle is? You would do what? Say it out loud. Look at the cover. Look at the cover. If we don't know the big picture, we're always going to come to faulty conclusions. And that's why Christians through the centuries have, have had so many erroneous ideas about God, about what the meaning of Christ's sacrificial death is, and so forth. All right. Now, I want to give you something that, that I just kind of stumbled onto in this. If we understand the Genesis 3 narrative, then the whole Bible starts to make sense. You literally can synthetically divide the whole Bible up like this. What I did, the book of Genesis all the way through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
It's God's revelation of himself. When you're slandered, man, you can't just say, hey, that's not true, because nobody's going to believe that necessarily. When you're slandered, you must patiently, gently, persistently, over a protracted period of time, prove that your character is not what was presented. That is the only way to overcome slander. And you'll never overcome slander with some people. Once somebody slanders you, you're pretty much nailed. You're on the defensive. So God starts in Genesis all the way through the Gospels to progressively reveal himself. The big initiative when God comes in the form of a baby, Jesus, the creator of the universe, and form baby. Now God's going to take it from just laws and abstract concepts about himself, which is what the Old Testament was, so he's going to take on a physical body and reveal his heart completely to humanity and to the angelic civilizations. So Genesis 2 to God. Then if you want to see reconciliation, so he reveals himself in order to bring back our trust or to reconcile us to himself. You can see in the book of Acts, the early church presenting Christ, the fullness of God, and people trusting in Christ, becoming his followers. Restoration. God wants to take the damage of I mean, it. You know how that verse goes, all have sinned and come short of the, what does it say? Somebody say it? The glory of God. It's talking about the image, the character of God. Well, now God wants to restore in us. We were meant to bear his image, made in his image. So if you take Romans through the book of Jude, in the New Testament, it's all about growing. It's all about developing. It's all about becoming the Christ-like person that you and I were meant to be from all eternity. Then you could go to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5 through 19, what you have is the deconstruction of the evil civilization and what supports that civilization. It's, it's kind of like a demolition. God is doing demolition in Revelation 5 through 19. And again, he does it with a, a gentle, loving hand. He's, he's withdrawing his protection. E evil people, you know, they don't know how much protection we enjoy every day from God. You know, no asteroids are striking us lately or anything like that, so we don't think anything of it. But in Revelation 5 through 19, he's deconstructing the, the civilization of evil that we live in. Then in Revelation 20, separation of evil, evil and righteousness cannot live together. They're, they're mutually exclusive. If I allow evil, I'm not truly righteous. If I'm evil, I want to destroy righteousness because it makes me uncomfortable. I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to destroy it. So Revelation 20, he's going to, he, God has to, at some point, separate evil and right, those that are righteous. And then in Revelation 21, 22, you have the reconstruction. God makes a new heaven, a new earth, in which there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. And that's the whole Bible. The whole Bible is essentially God revealing himself to people. And then as those people trust him and are reconciled to him and obey him, he reveals himself through people, yet to others, in hoping to draw yet others to himself. So all of this is wrapped up in this, this Christmas event. It wasn't arbitrary that God would become human and reveal himself fully. It was the only way that God could reveal his heart to the angelic civilizations as well as to humanity in fullness by becoming human. So full of vulnerability, but the vulnerability turned out to be the strength because it's because God revealed his mercifulness and gentleness that we are now drawn toward Christ instead of running away from Christ. All right, now that leads directly into 
our potentiality. And I want to take that as the final point here. So because God has revealed himself to us in a vulnerable form, I mean, had he appeared in flaming fire and power, all it would have done was intimidate us. I always am amused by Christians that (laughs) bemoan the fact that we, we don't have more power uh, experiences more dynamic miracles and things like that and yet Jesus himself said it's a sinful and adulterous generation that seeks after miracles what did Jesus mean well when people demand miracles or when people think well meaning Christians think that, that, that miracles are what are going to change people's minds about God they don't understand God's methodology nor do they understand human hearts uh, only love can beget love miracles at best all they do is they cause awe they cause people to be intimidated and they might get their attention but they cannot they cannot turn a person into a trusting person who didn't trust God uh, it's, it's no different than when you know we we see the radar trap set up we slow down right we don't slow down because we love the law <laughs> But the radar, it's just like a, a thief, uh, you know, who's in a store, but he sees the cop. The, does the thief s- cease to be a thief? Well, when the cop's there, yes, that's true. But he's still a thief, or she's still a thief. So intimidation can only bring outward conformity. It cannot bring authentic inner transformation. The only thing that can bring authentic in, inner transformation is God must win my trust. He must win my admiration, my, my affection, my attraction to the point that I, I not only like him, I want to be like him. It's got to come from desire. By the way, it's not just that I want to go to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. <laughs> I don't care who you are. You want to go to heaven. We churches have dumbed this thing down to the point that we've deceived people. And we, we, we tell people, oh, you know, it's just about making your decision. Make sure you want to go to heaven. You know, just trust in Jesus and pray this prayer with me. Oh, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me and save me for Jesus' sake. You can pray that prayer until you're blue in the face. If you authentically haven't had your heart won to Christ, if, if he hasn't won your trust so that you spontaneously and freely want to follow him, want to learn his will, want to learn his ways, want to obey him, then what you have is a deceptive contract in your mind, but you are not yet a Christian. A Christian is one that Christ has won our trust, and because I now trust him, I I am eager to learn his word and eager to learn his will and eager to obey him in every, every area of my life. Why? I just trust him more than I trust myself. That's what it means to be a Christian. So our potentiality, when you think about the characters again, you got, you know, Joseph and Mary, they're, they're completely out of their league in dealing with someone like Herod. You got a, chi- a child, a little baby. But the potential of the baby we now know was to change the entire world. It was the move of God to intervene to win back the trust of those ho- whose hearts can be won. Joseph and Mary that appeared to be just two parents out of control, just struggling to survive, struggling, struggling to keep their kid alive, we now know they were making eternal change in the lives of multiple millions because they just simply cared for their child the way that God intended. So the potential that Scripture lays out for us is one that we need to, to understand and then pursue and cooperate with. Once we've returned to God in trust, well, then he can start to, to restore his image in us. So let's consider our potentiality. 
Here's what the scripture says about our potential. For those God foreknew, he also, what does it say? Predestined. Now, when you read that, and that's how a lot of Christians read that verse, it, it, it sounds like it's all about the who, that there's this secretive core of people that God foreknew, and he foreknew them because he already predestined them. And some Christians will go so far to say, God's got his chosen ones, his elect, and he chose to save them in advance. He predestined them, and they're going to be saved no matter what. But others he just decided to over, overlook and let go. Therefore, you're predestined to be saved or not saved, and it's not a thing you can do about it. You think you have a free will, but you really don't have a free will. That, that's what some Christians teach. Of course, that's completely non-biblical, complete error, complete Completely distorts the character of God and a complete misrepresentation of this verse because the verse doesn't stop there for those God foreknew he also predestined but were they were the those predestined or was something else predestined let me show you the rest of the verse to be what does it say so what's predestined the the those the people or the what for those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son it's a what that's predestined God does not predestine people he predestines that those he foreknew what did he foreknow about people he looked down through eternity and knew that if he revealed himself sacrificially that he would win back the trust of some and he says they'll they'll be my chosen they'll be my elect and those that come back to me in trust I will enable them to grow, to develop, to take on the very likeness of my son, Jesus himself. So that's what's predestined. Then it adds this, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Literally, literally, God wants Christ to be born in each of us. Uh, we're actually going to touch on that theme in uh, on Christmas Eve message as well. So that's, what's that's your potential. Your potential, my potential for change it's off the charts. You ever meet these people that say things like, well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm Irish, man, so, you know, I'm always going to have a fiery temper, you know, or something like that. That's just me. That's just where I was born, you know. Well, you can, you can lie to yourself like that, or you can look at what God says, and he says, I have the potential, you have the potential, if you've trusted Christ and become his follower, to continue to change all through life, and your changes can just move you from one level of Christ-likeness to the next. There is no habit that you cannot overcome. There is no uh, virtue that you cannot acquire because it's, it's your spiritual DNA once you've trusted in Christ. Let's go on to look at, look at this thing about potential a little bit more. Ephesians 4.14, it says, Our goal, our goal, which means this is something I desire. This is something that matters to me. This is something I'm going to pursue and if I don't value it, if I don't pursue it, it's not going to happen. A goal has to be pursued. Our goal is to become like a full-grown man or person. But what does a full-grown man or person look like? To look just like, what does it say? Christ. And have how much of his perfection? Oh, Randy, you're talking that stupid perfection stuff again. Nobody's perfect. We're just forgiven sinners. That's all we are. It's all about grace, man. You just don't know. By the way, I'm going to do a Bible Institute coming up in January on grace. Um, it'll be on a Tuesday evening, and we'll, we'll cover about two hours on, on grace. Because grace is a wonderful biblical concept, but it's also um, greatly misunderstood and misapplied in many areas. So anyway, your, my, our potential 
and what should be our goal. Now, now here's where we've got to stop. Is your goal just to go to heaven and escape hell and uh, whatever notions you may have about hell? Or is your goal, to, uh, sometimes your goal is just, I want to go to heaven, I want to make sure my sins are forgiven. Oh, okay, I get that. But, but that's not the goal. A Christian is one that has such admiration for Christ. He's won my admiration. I look at him and I say, that's the way life ought to be. That's the way everybody should be. I want to be like you. I don't only really trust you. I don't, I don't just like you. I don't just adore you. I want to be like you. Folks, we, we, we got to let that spin around in our soul and make sure that that's in there because that's the way real Christ followers think. Their goal is not to just get by and make it to heaven. Their goal is to grow every single day of their lives to become more like Christ. And we have the potential for that de development. John 15 kind of adds a key part to this. This is Jesus last night with his disciples. He's been with them three and a half years every day. He's been the center of their life. They went where he wanted them to go. They learned what he wanted them to learn. They did what he wanted them to, to do, what he wanted them to do. Their whole life had centered in Christ. They, they understood. This is the last night he's going to be with them. He's going to go to the cross in less than 12 hours. He says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Those who stay united with me, well, they knew what that meant. And I with them are the ones who bear much fruit because apart from me, you can't do what? A thing. You break off a branch from the vine, it starts to die immediately. It can't produce fruit. Christ is saying that this development, this fruit, which is character development as well as the good works that, that just kind of flow from that character development, that it can't go on. We, we were built by God to live inspirational lives. We were meant to be inspired by Christ, and that, that inspiration gives us power, gives us motivation, gives us enthusiasm to pursue God, to serve him, to expand his kingdom. Uh, without Christ, when our connection is not to Christ, we're kind of like a, a, a power saw that's unplugged. The thing has plenty of potential, but unless it's plugged in, it's not going to accomplish a thing. So this, this development that we're talking about, it only happens as we live Christ-centered lives. Now I want to turn a corner as we get ready to close. In the book of Revelation, and remember I said that if you want to synthesize the Bible, Revelation 5 through 19 is God's deconstruction of the evil society that has been built. But something happens in heaven just before God is about to intervene again. And he's about to intervene in a, in a huge way to deconstruct the systems of evil. They're trying to look around in heaven and say, who is fit? Who, who can we entrust this much power to, to deconstruct the systems of evil on planet Earth? Who, who's worthy of yielding this kind of power? They, Apostle John is there and he begins to weep because they, they looked and no one was found worthy, not in heaven at all. Then he began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. This scroll is going to be the, the beginning of the deconstruction of evil on planet Earth. But one of the 24 elders, these mysterious elders, they're not humans. They're, they're more than likely angelic beings that God's given power to rule and reign with him, part of his council, inner circle. They said, stop weeping, they tell the apostle John. Look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. 
He is, what is the word? Worthy to open the scroll and it's seven seals. By the way, I'm, uh, in January, I'm going to start a series on, on, about worship. What does worship actually mean? And how comprehensive is it? And, and I think you're going to be shocked at how critical, how comprehensive, and how natural worship is. It's not just something we do on a Sunday. It's, it's more than that. Anyway, you're worthy. He is worthy to open the scroll and it's seven seals. Now we see a line. When you think of a line, you think of power. So, this is somebody that's got the power to deconstruct the systemic evil on planet Earth. But, but, but is power, if you're looking for someone that's going to be the, the universal ruler and complete control of all the affairs of planet and Earth, do you want somebody that's just almighty and all-powerful, or do you also want someone that's all good? I mean, you, you can be almighty and all-powerful, but you can be selfish and egotistical and, and impulsive and all kinds of things. So, so the lion is revealed, but then it quickly shifts. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it, as, as if it had been slaughtered or killed, but it was now standing. And they sang a new song with these words, to, now, mind you, they're singing to the lion who turns out to be the slaughtered lamb. They sang these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, slain, killed, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. So it goes on, I think there's one more stanza, is that, or is that the last one? No, okay. So... Here we see that, that what makes Christ, and it is a picture of Christ in heaven. By the way, in the book of Revelation, from that point on, the term the lamb shows up about 29 times. It's the lion who is the sacrificial lamb that rules and reigns. And he's the only one fit to deconstruct systems and judge evil and cleanse the universe of evil because he's going to do it with a sacrificially loving hand. And that's what evokes worship in heaven. All of heaven breaks out worshiping spontaneously because they have seen this, this amazing beauty. The Almighty is the gentlest, most sacrificial, loving individual in the universe. When they see the two, it is not enough just to have all power. He has to be all good, all loving, all sacrificial before it will evoke authentic worship in the heart of anyone. Now I'm going to close with three, three thoughts. God revealed himself vulnerably so that distrust and disobedience would be abolished eternally. That has perhaps happened in most of our hearts in here. But if it hasn't happened to your heart yet, you have an opportunity today to put your trust in Christ and become his follower. Everybody's following somebody. You're either following yourself or some other human, or you can put your trust in God as he revealed himself in Christ and become his follower today. And if you put your trust in Christ and become his follower, he does promise forgiveness of all of our sins as well as eternal life in his kingdom. His kingdom is the only place we'll be fit for once we put our trust in him and become his followers. Second thought, God reveals himself vulnerably so that we can relate to him authentically. If I don't know God's safe, I'm never going to relate to him authentically. I'm always going to be intimidated. I'm always going to be scared. I'm always going to be trying to appease him. I'm always going to be, be looking for some mercenary blessing from him. Only love can beget love. And so for me to authentically relate to God, he makes himself vulnerable, 
in a baby, in a man who goes to a cross to let me know how much he loves me, how much he wants my good and knows it. I, I, I can only grow and develop as I feel safe and secure in my interaction with the Almighty. The Almighty is the safest person in the universe. And finally, this one. God reveals himself vulnerably so that we can reach our full potentiality. And I just covered that. We, we can't authentically grow. When I'm still a little bit afraid of God, when I'm still a little bit of trying to work an angle on God to get him to bless me, to do something for me, or I'm trying to appease him, get him off my back or whatever, I'll never grow. You, you can read the Bible cover to cover every year. You can, you can memorize it. You can go to church for 50 years. You will never become one iota more Christ-like if you're motivated by fear or mercenary desires to gain something from God. It's only when His love begets love in us that we start to authentically grow and Christ-like transformation actually occurs. For some of you, that might be the whole message. You, you've wondered why you've been stuck, why you're not growing. Um, perhaps this is the key that you've been relating to God in a mercenary way or an appeasement-based way. And he's just waiting for you to, to really trust him and allow his love to start to stir authentic love and affection in yourself. Well, it's Christmas, and we're going to be surrounded by lots of people and family that are not going to be thinking about Christmas the way that we've talked about it for the past three weeks. My heart's desire is that forevermore and in every situation you find yourself in, you will always know that Christmas was this enormous initiative of God. It was a strategic initiative to end evil forever. It was the start. It was the D-Day of the abolition of evil, as well as the, the start of reconciling all those that can be reconciled to himself. Are you one that are amongst his chosen? Are you one that he has successfully reconciled to himself? Has he won your trust? Has he won your affection? Has he won your attraction? In a world where everybody's following somebody, can you say from your heart, I don't care who the rest of the world is following. I don't care what they do. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow him fully. And I'm following him freely. I, I want to follow him forever. That's who I am, and nobody or anything in this life will ever change that. If you can say that, then you can say also, yes, you are amongst the chosen. You are amongst those that will be spontaneously worshiping in that scene that we closed out with in heaven. Now, we're going to sing a song in closing that's connected to that very last scene in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, that we looked at. But let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll close. Father. As we sit here today, we thank you for this unspeakable opportunity that we have to be at this place, this time in history, and to have these truths given to us. Help us to take a fresh look. Help us to take a deeper look. More importantly, help us to make sure that we are living these out each and every day. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.